Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. We're in the first two verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We're back in our series in Romans, and we'll be in Romans chapters 12 and 13 over the next several weeks and months until we uh, pause for our Easter series, and uh, it'll be good. And after we finish this section in Romans, we'll be only three chapters away from finishing the book of Romans. So uh, that is a neat thing to think of as the Lord has been with us and teaching us so many things through this uh, marvelous book. So right now, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through, two, 1 through 2, and let's hear this as it really is, God's very own word to us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth this morning, what I'm hoping that we walk away with from these verses is this. God calls us to inhabit the new life we have in Christ Jesus by continually and worshipfully presenting our bodies and minds to him to be transformed according to his will. I know that's a mouthful, but I think it's important. God calls us to inhabit the new life we have in Christ Jesus by continually and worshipfully presenting our bodies and minds to him to be transformed according to his will. Romans chapters 12 and 13 have been called by many commentators a kind of holiness code in a way that's reminiscent of the way that the first or the latter half of Leviticus is a holiness code for the people of Israel. It's sort of set up for the people of Israel how they were to live, given this wonderful new covenant that God had made for them, how they were to live as the people of God. And in a similar way, these two chapters of Romans function to remind us how are we supposed to live as the people of God? What is the actual difference that the gospel is supposed to make in the way that we interact with one another and the way that we think about our lives and the, the goals and ambitions that we set up for our lives? However, Romans chapters one, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 are very important that we hear the remainder of Romans 12 and 13 in a very specific and important key or an important tone. And the tone that we hear is that the gospel is something that we are enabled to embody, something that we're called to embody. It is to become part and parcel of the, uh, of the way that we are, of who we are, and transform everything about us. It is, to use a favorite expression of Paul's, us putting on Christ, putting on Christ. You often hear that when Paul will speak about the new life that we have in Christ Jesus, and he'll then follow that up and say, put on, therefore, Jesus Christ. Well, you and I can often be confused by that language. We hear it so often from Paul. What does it actually mean to put on Christ? Well, I think in these verses, we have a very concrete and practical picture of what that actually means. And this is important also. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, help us to see the link between this holiness code, or the way that we are supposed to live as God's beloved people, and Paul's emphasis throughout the book of Romans on the unity that we all share in Christ. The unity that we all share in Christ. I think we'll be helped to see this a little bit better if we consider this question that a commentator called Michael Gorman poses to his readers. This is what he asks us. He says, the question for the Roman Christians and for us is the following. What does it mean on the ground 
to be a community that participates in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. What does that actually mean? On the ground, to be a, father, to be a community that participates in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what we're called to do. That's what we want to do. You've heard that in many ways, often from us, from the front. And, and as we th- think about these things and talk about these things in small groups, we want to be a community that lives out the gospel. And so easily that can become just one of those pie-in-the-sky, Christianese sorts of language things that we hear and we repeat. We don't really have a concrete idea about, that, about what that actually means. Well, what does it actually mean to be on the ground, a community that participates in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, Romans chapters 12 and 13 are designed to answer that. And we're meant to hear this in a very particular key, that we live it out in the context of embodying the gospel as people who are united to one another in the gospel. So Romans 12, 1 through 2 helps us see the practical answer to this question depends on our sense of self, on our sense of self, and how that sense of self is developed by our worship of God. So let's get into it. Paul's opening line, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, it's yet another precious indication of the unity that we all share in the gospel. Because you remember, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been dealing with the tensions between people groups played in the unfolding redemptive plan of God. But now, as he turns his gaze to the question, how are we to live that out in the light of our unity, the opening line that he has is, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, we are the family of God together. We are not disconnected individuals that just happen to gather in the Ben Robertson Community Center every weekend. No, we're the family of God. And we're the family of God even when it particularly doesn't feel like we're the family of God. We're feeling that maybe lonely or left to our own devices. We're still the family of God. The fundamental reality of who you are as united to Jesus Christ is family. And we're family to one another. We can never lose sight of the preciousness of this. Even as Paul has been dissecting and going through in these two chapters, what does it look like that there are now Jews and Gentile Christians? And how do we understand their roles together and their life together given the fundamental antipathy that so often was experienced between them? How do we live as the family of God? Well, remember, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Many years ago, as I was serving as an intern at a church in Paris, France, and that church was a very diverse church and had Christians from all over the world. There were two big groups in that church, Christians who had become Christians out of North Africa, out of the Muslim faith, and Christians who had become Christians out of a Jewish tradition and heritage. And they were there in that church. And one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel that I've ever seen is their practice every year at the beginning of the year to get together and host a meal that they would invite all their friends and family to, all their Muslim friends and family, all their Jewish friends and family. And the whole point of the meal was to say, look at us, we're able to share a meal together. And we're able to do that because of who Jesus Christ is for us. And many times these family members literally had relatives and others, friends, who were literally fighting one another in Palestine. And what a picture it was to them to see the gospel at work in this particular community to bring these two disparate groups together, not just as friends, not just as people who got together every weekend, but as family. And so Paul's address to us here as the family of God is critical to the way in which we hear the remainder of his instruction to us in the next two chapters, that we're the family of God. And our sanctification It's not just on us to do it all by ourselves. We need the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We need the encouragement that comes from seeing them live out their calling. We need the encouragement that comes from seeing them worship. And they need the encouragement that comes from us living out our calling as the children of God and us worshiping. These things make such an impact on the way in which we understand our call to grow into grace, to grow into the family of God together. So Paul's opening line is not a throwaway line. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. And then he makes this appeal to us, he says, according to the mercies of God. Again, not a throwaway line, filled with meaning here, something that we need to see. Although Scripture sometimes exhorts us to repent, often exhorts us to repent, by reminding us of the judgment of God, it'll say things like, remember, the judgment of God is coming. Against these things, we will not ultimately escape. We will have to give an account for every even idle thought that we have thought. So remember, the judgment of God is coming. But we should never forget that never far behind that appeal is an appeal to repent because we have seen and experienced the mercy of God. God has been so faithful and good and kind to us. His mercies are new every morning. How can we not run to him to find grace and steadfast love and faithfulness? And so these two things form the basis of how we're to think of God. You could almost think of Paul's opening line, how are we to think of one another as we jump into what does it look like to live in this new holiness code, live as the people of God, when we're to think of each other in a certain way as the family of God. How do you think of God as the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Again, not a throwaway line. Paul appeals to us according to the mercies of God. And considering God's mercy should move us to present our bodies, Paul says, to him, Paul says, to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, in Paul's day, this would have been a shocking thing to say because the body was often viewed as something to be escaped from, really, something inherently bad, something that kind of got you down. You know, your soul was good, probably, and something you wanted to invest in, but your body, eh, not so good. In our day, it's shocking because we often view the body as something no one else, not even God, has any say over. And for anyone else, even God, to declare that they have any say over is inherently offensive to to us, we feel. And even if as Christians we don't join in with this view, we often live implicitly in terms of it because we rarely consider what does it mean to offer up our, God, our bodies to God to glorify God? How do we use our bodies to glorify God? Think of it this way. When we lived in rebellion against God, when God wasn't the, our, our horizon, the way in which we lived our lives, the goals and ambitions by whose will we set our lives to, when we lived for ourselves, our sinfulness revealed itself in our bodies. It did. We used our mouths to speak lies and slander other people. We raised our hands in anger. We used our sexuality to gratify our lusts. We used our eyes to covet, and so on and so on. But now that we have been united to Jesus and given new life in him, we are to put to death this remaining corruption in our bodies and use our bodies for an entirely different set of goals and purposes. I think we often feel the tension here, don't we? On the one hand, as Christians, we know our bodies were created by God. They're good things, and God is making all things new. And one day, he'll resurrect our bodies to be glorious, like his body is glorious, to never perish, to never feel the corruption of sin. 
So we, we hold that, but at the same time, we often give short shrift to our bodies, and we often think, well, the main thing is that I'm thinking the right thoughts, having the right attitudes, that are my, 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 my internal posture is basically right. And also compounded on that is that we live in a very therapeutized culture in which everyone seems to recognize, all right, there's things going on inside of me, inside of my head, and there are uh, things from my childhood that often I, that just, I need to process. And so we have this feeling that the main problem in our lives is inherently internal. And if we just get all that internal stuff fixed, then you know, we don't really have to worry so much. The rest of it, at best, will kind of take care of itself. That's not the biblical picture here at all. Now, the Bible doesn't present a dichotomy as was so often assumed wrongly in the early church between the body and the mind. But it does present a holistic picture, and it constantly challenges us to think about the ways in which we are using our bodies, whether for the glory of God or merely for our own ends. Think about how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He said, the eye is the lamp of your body, essentially. The eyes are the, the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, then the whole body will be bad. Haven't you, like me, sometimes just puzzled over it? Often experience with that is because we do. We feel this sort of unbiblical dichotomy between our bodies and our minds. What Jesus is saying, what you put before your eyes is going to have a huge effect on the way that you think and your self-perception and your ability to worship God. And that, in turn, is going to affect the way that you use your body, whether for the Lord or for yourself. So we need to see there's a close connection between the way in which the Lord calls us to honor him with our minds and also to honor him with our bodies. So we need to think about this uh, seriously and take it seriously. In the following verses, Paul is going to spell out these goals and purposes, the, the new goals and purposes that God calls us to use our bodies for in the context of community. And we'll consider them in more detail in the weeks ahead. But for now, let's consider that Paul calls this new way of using the body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, Paul asks us to picture ourselves as priests, offering up on God's altar not slain animals, but our own bodies. However, we don't kill our bodies. Instead, we offer our sacrifice by living out in gratitude God's will for God's grace in Christ because we love who God is. Thomas Erskine famously said that you can think of the Christian life in this way. Religion is grace. Religion is grace. All the things that you and I think we need to do to get in God's good favor, the, the summary, the biblical summary over, that, over all of that is grace. And ethics, all the things that you and I need to do to live in response to that is gratitude. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. So we think about all the Lord has given us, all that we are in Christ Jesus, all that we've been made in him, how are we to live in terms of that? Remember who he is. Remember who he has made us and live out of gratitude. Paul then says that this living sacrifice that we offer is our spiritual worship. Now, other Bible versions translate this phrase as reasonable worship or sometimes rational worship. And there's good reason behind each of those translation choices. But back behind each of them, we should see that the big idea in the text is not that our worship is mystical in the way that many people, I think, wrongly think of spiritual or spirituality today, but that it involves the whole of our personality. Everything that you give to the Lord will be given back to you, pressed down, doubled over. And everything that you withhold from him will be ultimately lost to you. 
So God wants the whole of our personality, all that we are, all the little things that make us, us, all the little things that make you, you, and make you tick, that all the little things that make you the unique individual that you are, God demands that of you, the whole of your personality. And as we seek to honor God with our body, we also engage our mind. Our goal is not, it's not to be mindless, it's rather to be intentional, thoughtful, involved in obedience to him and adoration of him. That is what spiritual worship is all about. Again, it is so easy for us to, despite our good theology, despite what we know of the redemptive story, to so easily slip back into a sort of dichotomous way of thinking, where we begin to think the spirituality really has to do with my inner feelings and my inner state of mind. It doesn't have anything to do with my body. But in fact, we know that it has a great deal to do with our bodies. This is one of the reasons why we, in our worship series a few months ago, we spent some time thinking about the way in which we engage in worship on Sunday morning. And that has a lot to do with our unique wiring. Don't hear me say this wrongly. I'm not suggesting that we somehow need to put on something that is foreign to ourselves. No, but we do need to be thoughtful about the ways in which we're using our bodies in worship. That we're not brains on sticks, you know, come merely to feed information into our heads, but we have a body that God has given. And in worship to him, we respond to his goodness to us by using our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And just because this worship is a living sacrifice, it is to be performed not in richly decorated temples or confined to church buildings. It is to be performed in the ordinariness of home life and marketplace and all your spheres of influence. Here's the rub, though. As you are engaged in the ordinariness of home life and marketplace and all your spheres of influence, you are engaged in the world. And not just the world in the sense of the stuff that God has created, the creation that is out there. No, in the other sense that the Bible often uses and that Paul has in mind here, the sense of the world as a way of life, a pattern, a sense of self on terms against God and resistant to his will. Well, how are we to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him in such an environment as this? And that's what Paul deals with in verse 2. First, he says, we are not to be conformed to this world. I think that should recall for us the phrase we often use at CCC, nothing is neutral. Not to be conformed to this world means that we don't allow ourselves to act as though there are attitudes or ambitions or dreams or behaviors that are neutral with respect to God. It means being watchful over our life and over our doctrine. It means being clear-eyed, about the role that God intends the means of grace to play in your life and my life in keeping us from falling into habits of sin. And thus we should be very serious about availing ourselves of them even when, and maybe especially when, we're not entirely sure they're doing anything for us. That's what it means to be not conformed to this world. To lay hold of the means of grace even when you're doubtful that they're doing anything in that particular moment. Because the way of the world is a way of life. It's a sense of self that puts the self and its own understanding front and center and makes all of its decisions and puts all of its hopes upon your sense of identity and your sense of understanding in that particular moment. And what God is calling us to is to recognize that's not the way he's called us to live. Lay hold of the means of grace, 
even when you're not especially sure they're doing anything for you because they are doing something for you. Winston Churchill, in his account of the River War, which is a war that Britain fought in Africa before the outbreak of the First World War, he noted that all the noble ambitions of people sooner or later seem to be suffocated in the very world that we live in. It's, very, it's like the atmosphere that we live in seems to suffocate all of our noble aspirations. And those of us who are feeling the pain of that after our New Year's resolutions have foundered on the rocks a week in probably feel that, right? Like all my good ambitions, all the goals I had for this year just seems to be suffocated in the world. Well, in a similar way, Paul is describing for us what it means to live in the world that is opposed to Jesus Christ. So is the habitual course of the world alienated from God. It's fatal to our sanctification. And therefore, we must not be molded into its pattern. So that's the first part. Don't be conformed to the image of the world. Second, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, our way of doing things is to be shaped by a new way of perceiving things. What are we meditating on? What is our attention soaking in. As we begin this new year, is our perspective shaped more by the fact that we're living in a world that will soon pass away and therefore we filled our heads and our journals and our goals with things that will merely pass away? Vain regrets, futile resolutions, all the things we hope to accomplish and all, this hope, all the stuff we hope to get, or is our perspective shaped by the fact that we're, lit, we're headed to an eternal city where we will dwell with God forever. Do we take the redemptive story of the Bible seriously? Are we seeking to be transformed by it? By the way, in the text, both these verbs, they really express something that we're meant to continue to continue to do. In other words, we could translate them reasonably by saying, keep on rejecting conformity to the world. Keep on being transformed by the renewal of your mind. It reminds me of a, a story I heard from the Welsh preacher Jeff Thomas. He told a story. It sounds like a preacher's story, but I, I, I trust that he was telling the truth. He told a story about a fellow in his congregation, an older saint, who for 40 years, every morning, woke up, read his Bible, and prayed. Never missed a day. 40 years. Never missed a day. And he was known for this in the congregation. And he was one of those people, he was shaped by the word. Man, if you had something that was going on in your life, you could go to this guy and he had a word in season for you because he was so marinated in the gospel. People knew him and they loved him and they knew his story and they said, if he can do that, the Lord can do that for me in my life. Just be faithful. And one morning, he overslept. It was his practice, of course, to wake up in the morning and he would just jump right at it because he knew if he, if he ever missed it, you know, that, that was bad news. It was easy to make excuses after, you know, he'd gotten his breakfast and done some other things of the day. He might miss it. So first thing he did, head leaves the pillow, goes to his Bible, right? He, he oversleeps, though. Doesn't hear an alarm. Then he has a dream. In the dream, Satan appears to him and says, wake up, wake up. You're missing your Bible study. You're missing it. You got to get up. Come on, man. What are you doing? He wakes up, and he's terrified. Why would the devil come to me in a dream to remind me to read my Bible and to pray? So he thought about it some more. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. And then, just thinking over all he'd read over that year and all of God's goodness and what the gospel meant for him, he realized this, and the Spirit spoke to him and said, because God loves us more in our sin, earnestly repented of, 
than in our virtues that we boast in. God loves us more in our sin, earnestly repented of. Not, not that we hold tight to ourselves and think, well, I'm going to use this, and you know, God doesn't have any say over me here. No, earnestly repented of. But he loves us in our sin, earnestly repented of, more than he does in our virtues, boasted of. All the things that you're doing that you think, well, man, you know, God's got to love me now. I mean, look at this, 40 years, I haven't missed a day in his word. And also, that's been making a big impact on the way that I'm able to minister to other people in the church and my story is known. That's bringing glory to the kingdom, right? God's gotta be on my side. He's gotta bless me because I've done that. Mm -mm. It's like we often say, the antithesis to faith, it's not doubt, it's pride. You know, and, and often our pride can seep in because we, we use it. We, we say, well, my understanding of faith, is, it's good. You know, I'm trusting in the Lord so wonderfully. And that becomes pride. The very opposite of the way in which we continue to grow as the people of God. God loves us more in our sin, earnestly repented of. And remember, we're going to jump in. Paul discovered this, you know, in Romans 6. You jump into all sorts of problems because it's just confusing to us. We're so legally wired. So we hear that, and then we think, well, what are we supposed to say then? That we're supposed to sin more, that grace may abound? <laughs> Paul dealt with that, right? May it never be. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? But if we earnestly repent of our sin, God is there for us. He gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. And so we're to continue in this. We're to continue to keep on rejecting, being conformed to the pattern of the world, and continue to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Or in other words, this is the project of our entire lives as disciples of Jesus, this side of heaven. We won't do this perfectly. We're not seeking a blinding light eureka moment when all the little things of our lives suddenly snap into place and we become perfect. No. Instead, we're seeking to be faithful and humble and repentant. This is what long obedience in the same direction, that wonderful phrase, that Eugene Peterson has. That's what it looks like. Long obedience in the same direction. Faithful, humble, and repentant. So listen to how John Stott contrasts these two ways of being in the world. He says, we human beings seem to be imitative by nature. We need a model to copy. And ultimately, there are only two. There is this world, literally this age, which is passing away. And there is God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And these two value systems, this world and God's will, are incompatible, even in direct collision with each other. Whether we are thinking about the purposes of life or the meaning of life or about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, about ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else, the two sets of standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. No wonder Karl Barth, Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance. So violently does it challenge, interrupt, and upset the tranquil status quo. Well, God does not intend for us to live in the tranquil status quo. Instead, we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. He intends for us acceptable and perfect. Now, by testing... We may think that what Paul is saying is we test out God's will to see whether or not it'll be a good fit for our lives. But that's not what Paul means. No, what Paul means is that we begin to learn by experience that God's will is good and acceptable or, or pleasing. The big idea here is that it fits. It fits with who we are created to be and perfect. 
just as Scripture elsewhere invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. So here, Paul is encouraging us with the exhilarating thought that we get to learn by experience just how good and just how noble and just how satisfying God's will for us really is. So how do we live this out? Well, I have two thoughts of application for us. First, let us be diligent to hold this vision of life in our mind's eye as we proceed over the next several weeks through Romans chapters 12 and 13. This is the foundation for God's instruction to us in everything that follows. Our life, the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat our neighbors is shaped by our sense of self. And by the way, that, that phrase, sense of self, I'm getting that from a, a phrase, or the way that Charles de Gaulle uh, talked about the French people after the end of World War II. And they were a defeated nation, they were liberated by the Allies, and they were just feeling sort of depressed and, and down. What, what is the purpose of life? And so Charles de Gaulle, I'm not, this is no comment on his leadership or anything like that, but, but the way in which he thought about how he was going to revitalize the nation of France is to give them a sense of self. He recognized that the way in which they were going to grow into the people who were what they had before, or maybe even greater than that, was to have a renewed sense of self. That's the phrase that he used, sense of self. Well, in the same way that Paul is encouraging us here to have a sense of self that's shaped not by the ambitions that we have, not the patterns of the world that are out there, you know, merely to have a good family or a good marriage or be successful in our careers, but a sense of self that is emboldened and empowered and shaped by the gospel have a sense of self that is Christ-centered. So let's take it seriously. Let's hold that vision of life in our mind's eye as we begin to hear in the two chapters that follow, what is it to live as the people of God? How do we to embody this holiness code that the Bible gives to us? And second, let's take seriously God's call to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Let's consider the ways we have allowed ourselves to be shaped more by the pattern of life in the world than we have by the pattern of the gospel. And how that has expressed itself in the way we have presented our bodies as agents of sin rather than, rather than as agents of holiness and advocation for our brothers and sisters in the church. Let us run to the throne of grace for forgiveness and get there a new vision of life, a new sense of self, a new identity that is invited to learn by experience the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's not hold in our mind's eye the dichotomous picture of life, of mind, and of body that are so at odds in our culture. Let's see that these two things are connected for the people of God, that we are to live as our bodies are, a living sacrifice to the Lord, and in such a way be renewed by his transforming grace. And so Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, teaches us that God calls us to inhabit the new life we have in Christ Jesus by continually and worshipfully presenting our bodies and minds to him to be transformed according to his will. And I can't think of a better thing to do after we've heard these words from the Lord than to approach his table. Now this table is an ordinance of Jesus Christ. And he gave it to us to show us his death until he comes. So it's a benefit to us as we think about what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This table is given to us to support us when we are tired and troubled. This table is given to us to remind us of God's love and to inspire us with joy and zeal in him. 
This table is given to us to increase our faith. It's given to us to increase our resolve to live for him, to create a quiet conscience within us, full of peace, to renew our hope of eternal life. All that Jesus did and all that Jesus died to accomplish for his people is given to us in this table. And in that way, he signifies and seals to our hearts everything that he is for us and all that we are in him in this meal. And that's why he invites to this table only those who've made a profession of faith in him. Now, if that's not you, I ask that you let these elements pass you by. They won't do you any good. They won't nourish you. But come and speak to us after the service. We'd love to tell you how you can know this Jesus, how you can know this Jesus who gives new life to those who come to him in faith. Where where else will you go? He only is the one who gives eternal bread and eternal life. Come to Jesus. He won't cast you away. But for all of those who do profess faith in Jesus Christ, come to the table. Come even when you are doubtful that it is going to do anything for you. Come even though maybe this very week you failed in all the resolutions that you've made or you're not sure that you'll be able to uphold them, even the good ones like reading your Bible every day and praying. Come even when you're not sure the Lord is willing to accept you. Come because he gives the promise. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so I invite all the elders who are going to be helping to serve the elements to come forward. As they're doing so, just a few words of instruction to us. We're going to be passing the plates down the aisles, and one plate will have the bread in it, and one plate will have the juice cups in it. Take one of each and hold those until we're all able to have them, and then we'll stand together and partake together. But in the meantime, let's remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and having given thanks, he gave to the disciples, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful that you give us this table. Lord, we're grateful that you do not merely give us instruction in your word. You do not merely remind us of all the promises that you've given to us in the gospel. But, Lord, you give us more than that. You give us your own body. Lord, even as you call us to present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, we are enabled by you to do that because you have given us your body. And even now, Lord, as we take and hold your body and eat your bread and drink the cup of the new covenant, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with a renewed sense of all that we are in you, a new sense of self, Lord, that is able to lay aside all the conformity to the world in which we previously walked and all the ways in which we continue to be tempted by that. And this morning, may this meal strengthen our faith in you, quiet our consciences, Give us new resolve to live for you in everything that we do. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.